This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank wants to know how you reward yourself because they have cards that make every day more rewarding. Are you a points order, cashback guru, low intro APR lover? With U.S. Bank, it's up to you because they have the cards to fit your lifestyle. So earn more whether you're shopping at a gas station or grocery store, even while planning a staycation. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Oh, wow. You're actually wearing your hair down tonight. Yeah, because I finally decided that I love my hair. I figured out the solution for my morning frizz, midday poof, and even next day bedhead. It's Frizz E Secret Weapon Touch-Up Cream by John Frieda. Well, you and your hair look flawless. Flawless and touchable. Feel. Oh. See? It's soft. Smooth ends. No flyaways. Shiny. Well, I clearly need to get some because your hair looks amazing. Frizz E Secret Weapon. Only from John Frieda. Welcome to the East Coast Offense Podcast. This is Chris Liss of Rotowire. I'm going to be talking to Yahoo Sports' Dalton Del Don momentarily. This podcast is sponsored by FanDuel.com. You can go to FanDuel.com and click on the mic in the upper right-hand corner. Use my code RWPOD and sign up now. Special offer for new users. Get a free six-month RotoWire subscription with a $25 deposit. You must sign up with my promo code RWPOD. That's more than $60 in value for just $25. Don't forget to use my code RWPOD. FanDuel.com, where every day is a new season. That's F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com. Sign up today, and uh, you know, Dalton. I finally had my first cash of the of the young baseball season last night, and it was about time. I am just really sick of not making life changing money with my two dollar entries. It's, it's just driving me nuts. Well, congratulations, because I know you're going to lose some money to me in a, in a couple bets we made. So you're going to need that. It was five bucks the cash that I had. But, oh, nice. Well done. Yeah, I'm, I'm just. I'm not overly concerned because it's four days but i'm a little concerned the start that your team's had i looked at your stats yesterday and you had like in this 12 team mix league i think it was eight homers and you were batting 476 on the day my team had one home run maybe two runs scored and was batting 170 yeah i mean that's one of the best days i've ever had playing fantasy baseball by, by um by my hitters so i'm more than 20 points ahead of everyone in this league we have a sizable bet I'm up 98.5, and you have 68.5. It is very ridiculous to talk about this so early in the season, but even when we were live on uh, the satellite show this morning, while I was bragging about this team, Jay Bruce hit a three-run homer, and about one minute before we started recording this podcast, he hit his second of the day, and I own him as well. So this is one of the hottest stretches I've had in offensive production. Well, I'm happy for you. It's the first good season you've had in a long time. I know you've needed it um, for your self-esteem, so I'm very happy for you. So I, I hope I pay you this money. I really do. Uh, I don't believe that for a second, but thank you. The thing that I would not be happy, though, is if Jonah Carey is not giving us a check for first place in the basketball portion of the League of Leagues. So I wanted to check in with you on how that's going. 
Yeah, so we are currently two points up, and it changes every day because I, I've never seen anything quite like this in a rotisserie basketball league this close to the end of the year. We are in these specific categories, one point ahead in blocks, one point ahead in steals, one point ahead in assists, one point ahead in threes. And that's not where you want to sit. You want to sit one point behind because right. he, he can mostly do all the – the gaining, and even if he does one of those, that's a two-point swing because it means us dropping. So we're two free throw percentage points behind, um, and uh, it's going to come down to the wire, and it will be infuriating, as we've mentioned before, if it comes down to him ripping them off and getting Chris Middleton. And, uh, yeah, all these players are getting DNPs down the stretch, so it's um, it's very, very close. Yeah, it's interesting. Although with the DNPs, it's not as big a deal when the categories are like steals and blocks. Because if you get a guy who doesn't get those or get many of those, it's not a devastating blow. If it were points that we were neck and neck with people and you get a DNP and you lose 15 points, that's a big deal. Yeah, the thing is we've both kind of catered our teams for the steals. We, we, he, we can both tell which categories are the closest. And I've like I've made some some moves just for like a Matt Barnes is who gets one steal, one block, one three, you know, and he's. And like Miritich because of threes, so and he's done the same. So we are targeting those categories to be sure. I just want to hear that we won. Okay, next week at this time we will have a result, and I expect a win. And anything less is a major disappointment on your part. Yeah, it'll probably be more entertaining to the listener if we don't win. Right, just like what happened that we didn't win last time. Something came, something bad happened. I can't remember. Maybe it was just that you lost to me in the uh, in in the Stopa League playoffs. Uh, it. Yeah, I put try to keep, put that out of my mind, but that's that has to be it. Yeah, well, that must be it. And all your Super Bowl bets that you lost—that was pretty funny too. Very yeah, entertaining. Very hilarious. Well, let's make an exception in this case. All right, okay. let's talk about the first week of the season. I don't want to go over the Trevor Story stuff over and over again, but I do want to say two things. One is, I felt like people were being a little too clever by half. I was seeing on Twitter like, "Oh, I wouldn't pay more than five bucks for him in an NL only league," and you think, "Come on, man!" Even if you thought this guy was. You know, Billy Hamilton with no speed, he's a starting shortstop in course. Like, you're going to pay – right. Bu- I mean, you should pay 12 bucks for him just on principle. It doesn't really – let's not get too clever here, right? Let's just be simple-minded about it. He went for $7 in NL tout. And at the time, I asked every guy who came in, why didn't you say 8 And they had different uh, reasons. The only one that was – that and, and letting Derek Carty get Kershaw. And the only one who was honest was Todd Zola who said – I don't know, I screwed that up or something. He was the only one who just said, yeah, I should have. Everyone else had a reason. Can you believe that? In in an NL-only league, uh, the guy who's almost certainly, he wasn't named the number two hitter at that time, but who's almost certainly the starting shortstop in Coors Field, and he was somewhat of a prospect with speed, goes for seven bucks? Yeah, I think he had a lot of extra base hits. I know the strikeouts are going to be a problem, but in the minors, he wasn't a total scrub. And just the Coors hitters are just should be bumped up to 35% or whatever in general, let alone a shortstop. Um, I know maybe maybe the issue was Jose Reyes' uh, wasn't charged then. The news came out. I don't no, know. but it hadn't come out. That, okay, so this was when Jose Reyes could have ended up in jail at this point. Okay, not only could he have ended up in jail, but he was likely to get suspended for longer than he is now because that news came out later. And even if he does get suspended only for a month or so, first of all, we're already a week into the season and the suspension hasn't even started. I don't know if they give him time served. But two, he hasn't even been in spring training or warming up. With the, he's going to take a month to ramp up even if – the Rockies somehow, which they won't, decided just to give him the job right away. Which they're not going to do that. They're not going to take a prospect who's hitting. Unless Trevor Story were in a horrible slump, they're not going to just derail a guy they gave the job to who's the future of the position for some dude who beat his wife, or who's a new guy there. I mean, there's, just, there's no way they're going to do that. 
Well, that's why it's key for story owners for him to get off to a hot start, too. So, I mean, you can lock down this position, hopefully. I, I personally had him ranked ninth among shortstops entering the year, one, one spot behind Ian Desmond, and I think that was aggressive in the industry. Now, I'm not going to say that this is a victory over – it is right. cool he's the first player ever to have th three homers in his first three games, but that's come with zero walks. I mean, his on-base percent right now is 286, and he has four Ks. But, man, none of these hits have come in Coors Field, although in Arizona is the second-best place to hit. But, yeah, you got to like the lineup spot and the environment, and he has power. So it may not come with a ton of great batting average or speed. I just really like his setup. No, he, and I think he, he runs. He's a 20 to 25 steel guy in a full season. He has oh, speed. Okay. And, okay. and, moreover, I was getting into this on Twitter. If you read Jeff Zimmerman's article about Coors, they, he did a study, and he just took all the guys on the Giants, Padres, Dodgers, and Diamondbacks over the last six years and compared their cores numbers. In other words, so these are guys who don't play cores normally. So their numbers in cores, and they play a lot of games, of course, because they're in the division, and their numbers out of cores. Do you know what the average amount of batting average points they got when they were in cores, the bump? Mm, no. What would it, so, what? so you're a 250 hitter. What's, what would be the average that you would hit in cores? 20, 25 points. 50. Wow, and I was obviously knowing that you were going high when I guessed, too. So, like, this is the thing. I was, I was getting in this with Peanut, and he's like, no shit. Coors obviously is a good – we know this. Coors is a good park. Thank you for telling me. And I get it, but I didn't know the extent. I would have guessed 25-30. 250 hitter is a 280 hitter. No, a 250 hitter is a 300 hitter. Now, Rocky hitters typically do worse on the road, so that you know factors in. But if you're in friends and family or NFBC where you can just play them in Coors, if you have the bench room to, to have enough players to do that – you are getting – there's no chance that he has a bad average. I mean, there's yeah. no way he's not batting 280 in Coors. I love doing that with Nick Hundley this year as well. He had 355 at Coors last season. And if you're going to daily transaction league, he's money. Because he's probably had for free in one-catcher formats, but I would still start him in half his games. or you know, right. So I, I'm using him there. But And not only that, what you say about the Coors field effect, but just in general, in, in all of sports, supposedly your performance is about 10% better at home. Right. So that's really that's really remarkable what you're saying there. Yeah, it's ridiculous how much of a difference it makes. And the NFBC, where you can do the midweek switches, you can pretty much use a guy only at home if you have enough bench spots to have another guy to platoon him with on the road. Nick Hunley hits 355. I mean, that's just preposterous. If Nick Hunley can hit 355, Trevor Story can hit 295 in course, 285. Let's give him. So it's just the idea that he's a batting average risk. Even if he hits 230 on the road, he's still at 250 plus 260. And he's going to go 18, 18, 260 if he plays all year. I just don't, I don't see what the risk is. You know, I don't see what the downside is. Yeah, no, I'd be happy if I owned him. I mean, every league is its own different market, and some are really impatient. So I don't think there's any problem with shopping him now, of course. But it would take, you know, a a guy who went in like the seventh round or something for me to consider uh, making a deal right now, especially since shortstop remains probably the thinnest position. And I don't worry about position scarcity that much except catcher, but it's certainly all things being equal, you would take the shortstop. If, if you have Carlos Correa or Paul Goldschmidt, I would take the shortstop. I don't really like Goldschmidt anyway, so I mean, I like him fine, but I don't like him as the third overall pick or whatever he went. But I, I would take Correa straight up over Goldschmidt, no problem. So where, where do you think uh, Story should be ranked among shortstops if he held a draft tomorrow? Well, I don't like any of the mid-level shortstops. I just don't think they're worth what they're – you know, I don't, I'm not paying up for uh, Lindor. Desmond, I, didn't, I like Story better than Desmond before the season. I think Desmond is, uh, is in B.J. Upton territory, striking out 189 times, not walking, 
and try, not, not trying to make that a credible skill set from a corner outfield spot. I don't get it. Uh, this, that guy is in danger of hitting 230. Uh, I don't trust him at all. And he's got a little bit of power and a little bit of speed, but in real baseball, it's he's got a pretty weak skill set for a corner outfielder, and he's not defensively equipped to play shortstop. So uh, I think he's in big danger with you know Lewis Brinson and Nomar Mazzara and Hamilton coming back and you know Joey Gallo maybe being able to play outfield. I mean, there's there's no reason to stick with Desmond if he struggles. Oh, I agree with you there. And and there's obviously Tulo has his fleas, and who knows with the young guys in Bogarts and Seager. Um, so, so it sounds like you I'll take would, Seager uh, over him. I mean, Seager is a legit top prospect who delivered in his month and a half or whatever, however long he was up last year, and, and that was a continuation of who he is as a prospect. So even with the core's advantage, I'd still probably take Seager. But once you get past Seager, and, and Tulo would be close, it's just really you – know, I don't like to guess on health problem, guys. It's just, it's just totally a gamble. Who knows? You could make a case that Tulo's better, but it, there's really no slam dunks besides Correa – and, I mean, I'd probably take Lindor and I'd probably take Seager over him. But after that, you know, maybe Bogarts because – but I'm not – you know, Bogarts doesn't run a ton. He doesn't have a ton of power. I know he hit 320, but I'm not sure how sustainable that is. So – and Bogarts was a legit prospect too. I'd probably take Bogarts over him. And then Tulo's kind of 50-50 and Desmond, no. Yeah, I agree. I think his floor might be lower than some of these other guys, but his ceiling could be higher just based on Coors Field. And there's so many replaceable guys – that I had ranked from 10 to 25 at shortstop entering the year. The, so the many only, guys similar. The only reason his floor is lower, though, is because he he could lose. He could just not prove major league right. ready over the long haul. Right. But to the extent that he's even barely major league ready, again, you get a 50 point boost when you're hitting at home. If he's a 240 true talent, that's 290 at home, and it means he's going to hit 265 overall. Yeah, with power. I'm with you. No, I like him. And speed. (laughs) And speed. The guy is a stolen base guy. And, again, he hasn't panned out yet because he had four homers in three games. But it was a good bet before, and it looks a little bit better now. All right, a couple other guys I wanted to mention. Robbie Cano is raked from the start. And I posted a tweet that people kind of didn't agree with. And I said, this is no big deal. This is like Adrian Gonzalez last year. Adrian Gonzalez hit five home runs first week. Get three in one game, and everyone said, Adrian Gonzalez is just such a good hitter. This is why you draft a guy like this, and you don't reach for, you know, whoever the reach was. I can't even remember. You don't reach for these other players. You just draft a solid Adrian Gonzalez. He really knows how to hit. No, he's just, like, mediocre, good. I mean, he's a good player. He's your 25, 80, 280. And the fact that he hit five home runs and when he was sort of in a groove for a week does not change that. I think Cano is a little bit better at this stage than Gonzalez was. Maybe he's... 25 to 30 homers, 300, 295, 300. He's good, but big deal. This is an established guy whose level is, is roughly known. I suppose it's, it answers the question of, is he carrying over any injury baggage into this year? And for now, the answer is definitely not. But I think that was the case for the second half of last year, too. Well, yeah, that that's proves how bad his first half was last year. was truly health, it seems like. I mean, he hit 331 with a 926. OPS after the All-Star break last year. But I, I hear what you're saying. I've never really considered Cano a monster, monster fantasy guy because he didn't really steal many bases. He's never hit 35 homers. He's actually only reached 30 homers once in his career, and that was you know playing at Yankee Stadium. But it's, you know, it's great to have this, these stats banked on your team and get excited that maybe you got a guy that certainly was more discounted than he has been in the past. So it'll probably settle into the same guy he was 
somewhere in between last year's first half and, and last year's second half. Yeah, no, that's what I think. I mean, I think you're happy if he drafted him. It was a good pick. He's a third, fourth-round guy this year. He maybe should have been worth second, third round, late second, early third. But, you know, let's not get too excited about this. This isn't a young guy who's showing a new bunch of skills or achieving a new level. We know who this guy is. He's 33 years old at a position that's tough to aging-wise historically. And he's playing in Seattle. People are getting excited about Robbie Cano. What, What are you excited about? He's healthy, amazing. Yeah, okay, good. I know, and he's had a whopping 13 at-bats. So that's one that I'm not even going going to pay much attention to. The other thing, and and you and I touched on this in the XM segment, I just think it's such an important topic that is just not properly done, is that the sabermetrics tell us that batting average stabilizes over like 900 at-bats, which is so useless because by the time a guy gets 900 more at-bats, he's a different player usually. He's not even the same guy. And then two... You know, home runs stabilize over X amount of at-bats, strikeouts, all these other things. And everybody knows you can't wait that long. But what they really need to do is be able to take small samples, the magnitude of the sample, how many home runs a guy hits in a week. If, he hits th- if a guy hits three home runs in a week who's a 20-home run hitter, we, don't really, we can't really say much about that. If a guy hits eight or nine home runs in a week, maybe there's something going on there. If it goes over two weeks or three weeks, obviously the bigger the sample, the better it is. But we need to have some legitimate sabermetric analysis that doesn't just tell us stuff that's useless for playing fantasy baseball, but that's useful. So, for, for example, if a guy who's a 20-homer guy is at a 30-homer pace for three weeks, the question is, what percent chance is it that he's now a 30-homer guy and not a 20-homer guy? I want to know the percentage per, as the time goes and the magnitude goes. I want to have somebody create a chart to tell me. And, and we do this all the time sort of imprecisely in our heads. We say, ah, this guy's hitting a few extra homers this year. Maybe he's taking another. I'll, I'll pick him up. And, and if someone were to ask you, what percent chance do you think that this guy really is better? You'd say, I don't know, 20%. But if you know, that's, that's legitimate, I mean, if, if it happens, then I just made a big profit. We need to get some stats that tell us when we hit the 10% threshold, when we hit the 20% threshold, that this is a new level, not when we hit the 100% threshold. Right, because most statistical guys would say, in your example, that you should expect a 20-homer season pace over the rest of the year, what he's done, you know, his career baseline. Obviously, age is a huge factor here. I would consider it far more exciting if a 23-year-old gets off to a hot hot first week, hot first month, compared to someone like Robinson Cano. So I think that is a clear, clear difference to me. Totally agree. I mean, it's, we're not looking at a new possible level emerging, but what, but what I want is you're right. Let's just like neutralize and say 26, where 25, where there could be some growth, but it could be established. A guy's been in the league a couple of years, and he goes on a pace that's not him. We, we can't wait till he actually achieves the new level that it's proven that he's a different player. But there, you know, it doesn't all of a sudden when he gets to 80 games or 100 games or whatever the magic number is, he doesn't all of a sudden switch on like that. What happens is. That's when we can become reasonably certain about it, but we could be somewhat certain or a little certain or there's a chance. And it's incremental. Each, right, each game that he keeps doing it, this, the probability goes up incrementally. Right? I mean, that's how it works. It's not an all or nothing thing. He gets to the number and then all of a sudden, oh, okay, he got to the number. It's like every single week that he keeps it up, the probability that this is real gets higher. Yeah, well, I would like the, the answer to that. So why don't you do a study? I don't have the chops to do a study. I can complain and say that the, the guys who do aren't, are letting us down with these lame ass, oh, it takes this long to, to be legit, so let's just regress him until he gets there. I don't have the skill set to do it. And especially in fantasy baseball with totally unproven guys that didn't go drafted 
it, it, it would be far more beneficial, obviously, to add these guys early on in the year and you get a whole six months if they, they truly do break out, as opposed to we must have proof for two months and either you lose them to someone else in your league or you get them for you know fewer fewer games. Yeah, I think the batted ball data may make this a little easier because there's so much noise in the results. If somebody gets a single or is batting 350 or is batting 280, but if you were just to look at strikeouts, walks, velocity, trajectory, I think pretty soon you could start to see that not you wouldn't even have to know the names of players. You'd say, okay, here are the outcomes of the at-bats. Home run. Well, even, forget about home run even. It's, it's just, that's just trajectory and velocity. It ends up being home run because it's park dependent. So forget about all that. You just have trajectory, velocity, contact, foul ball, ball, or, or you know, miss, you know, swing and miss. You just have those those metrics for the whole, you know, every horse in the race. You're going to see some horses that are running out there that look like they're doing pretty well. And if you were to look up what the name was, it might be some J.D. Martinez two years ago, right? Or it might be Jose Bautista six years ago. It might be attached to a name you don't expect. And you just don't worry about batting average. You know, all that stuff is going to come, right? All the batting average stuff is going to flow from it. I think you pretty much could just have a very simple curve of how certain we are about these guys based on their past results. Sure, that, especially for hitters, obviously. But one of the most interesting guys so far this year has to be Juan Nicasio, who went undrafted, unbought in NL Labor, which has its draft early. Right. We're talking about a deep, I mean, 12 teams, NL only, with six reserve rounds, I believe. I mean, every every scrub uh, with a pulse gets picked up in that league. You know, D, uh, third relief pitchers on teams, uh, deep prospects that likely won't come up. And now he's followed up a dominant spring with a great first outing, but it sh- his track record is so weak. This was his first game, I'm sorry, second game of his career where he had seven strikeouts and zero walks in a season. So, And he has been in the league for a while, albeit most of those games came right. while pitching in Coors Field and is probably the best setup in baseball right now with Ray Searidge, the pitching coach. Uh, Cervelli ranked as the best uh, pitch-framing catcher last season, a really good defense. So I, I don't know. What do you make of when it costs you? How much would you change your value of him as opposed to three weeks ago? To double down on that point, in the Rotowire Staff Keeper League, there's 18 teams. You've been in it. Yes. 18 teams, 10 minor leaguers, 7 reserves. So when you get into that 7th reserve spot, nobody took them. I bid $17 of my fab on him because I screwed up the pitching in the auction, and I got him. And so far, so good. <laughs> I don't know how sustainable it is, uh, and a lot of what makes pitchers great is consistency. It's easy uh, for a guy, especially in this day and age, to get a seven strikeout, uh, no walk game if you're not a course field pitcher, how do you, you know how long do people sustain that? You know, Mike Fires struck out I think 11 or 12 in a game early last year. Had some big starts down the stretch the year before. Guys mediocre. You know, there's so many pitchers like that. I think Nicasio was touching like 97, 98 actually on the gun yesterday. Is that it's not just smoke and mirrors. I mean, the guys bring in that kind of heat, and then you have a, a proper pitching coach to help them sequence better and, you know, maybe work on some of the pitches or scrap pitches that don't work. And you know what his whip was that game? He gave up a home run, but he gave up two hits and no walk. So he had a whip of .33. Right, and this is following a dominant spring. So I don't know. It's, it's, I don't know if I remember a guy who's almost 30 years old with such a just mediocre track record kind of well, come around with this. But it'd hardly be the first guy that went to Pittsburgh and had their, their you know, best season of their career as a, as a veteran. Right. But, you know, the other thing is pitching in Colorado for four years is kind of like it's the opposite of AAA. 
If Fair Major enough. League Baseball is the letter before A, then this is the letter before that letter, right? If Major League Baseball is zero, then this is negative one. He's pitching. He was pitching at a a higher league, basically, where everybody hits fifty points higher. So you know now you come down to sea level where, and actually below, you know where Pittsburgh's probably in the other direction of minus five or ten points. It's just such a swing. So this guy's twenty nine, but he's twenty nine instead of coming from Japan or something. He came from the the place where the U.S. players hope to go, where they pay them more money, basically. You know, the, a fictional league that's with all has better players that he yeah, didn't fare I, well in. I think he has to be owned even shallowest of leagues right now just to see what they have in, on their hands because, I mean, clearly there, there's upside here. Yeah, he's throwing, he was throwing 97-98. Now, I think Sporer or Eno Saris or one of those guys mentioned that he didn't hold his velocity late in the game. I mean, it still was mid-90s, but it dropped a bunch, so it's just something else okay. to watch. He hasn't really had a huge amount of innings, so that's the other thing, you know, if he's really going to pitch more than 150 innings this year. Certainly, it's a fun guy to have right now. Yeah, he's cost you nothing. I can't believe it. I can't think of a guy who did not get drafted in labor in all the years I've done it who was suddenly, we're talking about here on this show, the first start. You know, like, like he could be, a, you know, a massive breakout potential. In 2006, I want to say, I picked up Carlos Pena, who ended up hitting 46 home runs that year, who was undrafted. The first five, I got Carlos Pena. And I got, I forget, Al Reyes, the closer on the Rays, who ended up getting, like, 35 saves. So those guys were on, you know, it happens, but it's, it's rare. The right. thing is, labor drafts so early in March that weird that's stuff true. happens. Whereas Tout, you know, everybody's pretty much drafted. That's true. But to be clear, we're talking about only leagues that are just no one's available on, on the waiver wire. So our guy Puig is raking so far, and I, I'm really excited about it because I have him everywhere, and I think, I think his floor is MVP. He... Makes me a little nervous still. I, I, I two years ago I drafted Josh Hamilton and he was killing it the first week. He was hitting like four hundred something. He had four or five home runs. He looked like peak Josh Hamilton. I got him in the fourth four or five turn in the NFBC main, and I was like, this is this is great. And then he slid into home head first, pulled an AJ Pollock, was out two months. He actually hurt his thumb, not his shoulder, and that was it. And he hasn't been the same since. And I just—that's the only worry I have now. Obviously, Hamilton had a way bigger track record of disastrous injuries and partying way harder than Puig ever did. Puig is an entry-level partying compared to Josh Hamilton, but I'm not worried about the partying. Actually, I'm just worried about the injury. Yeah, me too. No, he looks—he looks great. Um, he, I think he's hitting. Is he hitting third today in the lineup? Yeah, he is. There's yeah. no Justin Turner in it though. I, at first, I was very excited, but then Turner's getting a day off. So, but I was reading a puff piece. I think Buster only had it about um, just. Uh, just that he's totally looked different this this year. He got caught, uh, picked off at second base in spring. Instead of sulking like he would in the past, he went up to Dave Roberts and said, that'll never happen again. It's on me. Supposedly, they've struck a great relationship. His teammates have seen him engaging and be different. Now, who knows what to make of that? But when you're a young guy who also lost 20 pounds in the offseason, maybe the light bulb has switched. But, if, I mean, I bragged on Andy Barron's at a podcast this morning because we, you know, we've been at odds with him, and he's off to such a great start. It's the greatest feeling because I own him more than any, any player by far this year. But um, all it takes is one tweaked hamstring, and it could all go to hell. But it's certainly exciting to see him perform this way so far. Worrisome. Now, another guy that I loved. So, I, you know, obviously it was Kershaw was my top pitcher. Scherzer was number two. I pretty much had sale three, although I wasn't as firm on that. I wasn't on Arietta as much, although after one start he looks – just as good as all those other guys. Uh, and then uh, the next two guys I liked, believe it or not, were Keichel, who pitched fine uh, you know, in Yankee Stadium. And you see what happened to the other guys who pitched, so, or at least McHugh. 
And then Syndergaard was the other guy I liked at, at that spot uh, over Harvey. Strasburg I was up and down on. Fernandez I was up and down on. But I, I, by the end, it was Keuchel, Syndergaard were my next two. I mean, you got Syndergaard in that uh, Friends and Family League, and he struck out nine Royals. Let's just put this in perspective. The Royals don't strike out. Harvey had a, a real hard time with them in his opening day start. It's not even a, a tough decision for me if you're going to say, which Mets starter do you want this year? For me, it's definitely Syndergaard. Yeah, I had him as my number six overall starter, which I believe was aggressive, but admittedly I had Harvey one spot higher. I got him in the Friends and Family League and in labor, and it's hard not to just get totally excited, not just because of the results, but dude was having a 95-mile-an-hour slider. Like, just no one does that. Ned Yost came out afterward and said, no human being is physically capable of hitting the pitcher that we saw tonight. Right. So, Right. I mean, it looks it looks pretty sick so far. Royals are the team that they may not score 12 runs because they're not going to hit a lot of home runs, but shutting them out is tough. Striking out nine of them is tough. They're not the team that you beat up on. They're right. just such a pestilence. They foul off pitches. They make contact with everything. And if they, if they couldn't keep, touch his stuff, you have Kershaw and you have Arietta, You have Scherzer. I mean, Sale, you, you know, is going to miss bats at the highest rates, but his environment's not very good. Syndergaard's right there. If if somebody took Syndergaard as the second pitcher off the board right now, I wouldn't, I would not argue with it or, or consider it a reach. Yeah, it remains to be seen if a human arm can can hold up throwing a ninety five mile an hour slider. But um, I totally agree with you. I would not question that even a little bit if someone made him the number two starter on their board right now. I mean, I would personally in a draft right now rank all three of those guys as first round picks. Kershaw, Scherzer, and, and Syndergaard first round yes. picks. Yes. Interesting. Most people would be a little slow on that, but I think it's. I, I think probably if you if you look at what they're going to earn, it, it's true. All right. Do you have anything else for me, baseball wise? I mean, we could talk about a couple other guys. I didn't see Maeda because Time Warner and Directv and the Dodgers have decided to just basically destroy any goodwill from their fan base that they'll ever get by for a third season in a row, preventing us from seeing Kershaw in his prime and Vin Scully in his final seasons. So I didn't get to see Maeda pitch. Did you? Did you watching that? I did not watch a lot of that game, but um, he, he looked impressive from what I did see. And he also homered. I think he became the first Dodger to homer, which was crazy because they scored like 15 runs against them right. in the first games. Padres, first team ever to be shut out in their first three games start of season. Seems like a crazy stat. Um, yeah, he looked great. Um, Carlos Correa is, the fun, is another fun guy that I own on the friends and family team. Not sure what else we can say at this point. He's 21 years old, going crazy. But um, – yeah, I'm just glad baseball is here, and um, it's always nice to get off to a good start. You know, I joke that I'm it, we should just pack up shop, and I got got this league one. It, it's it's really involved three three days of baseball, so it's it's absolutely silly to really think that. But you know what? It's always nice to look up, and you're toward the top of your standings right now than at the bottom. Yeah, it's not so much the standings; it's the players that you gambled on. Uh, I gambled on Puig in a lot of places. I didn't consider it a big gamble, but so far so good. I gambled on uh, Adrian Beltre in a couple places. He hasn't done much, but he looks good to me. Byron Buxton, he struck out three times his first three at-bats and then hit two doubles yesterday. I feel okay about that. I've got Michael Brantley in everywhere, and I hopefully he comes back from the injury soon and starts to hit. But it's, it's really about seeing the the guys that you gamble on. Like Miguel Cabrera I have everywhere, and he hasn't done anything, but I'm not worried about that. That wasn't a gamble. That was a safe pick and knock on wood. But that's just sort of – I don't care about the standing so much as – how are my teams doing in terms of the the guys doing what they're supposed to? And so far, it's pretty good. And the standings aren't looking that great. I have Sean Tolleson and K-Rod as my two closers in two leagues. They've given yeah. up, I think, 10 earned runs already together, those two? 
yeah, that's that's not great, especially you have you have a closer blow up early on. It's it's terrible because Tolleson gave up five earned runs without recording an, an out, I believe. So not only does that destroy your ERA and WHIP, but he he didn't have the longest leash. So that's like twofold something you got to be a little concerned about. A player like that for me is Hanley Ramirez. I, I gambled on in a couple leagues, and and he's kind of a, a good correlation to to Cano. Maybe he doesn't go back to being a monster, but the, his whole well, it's the opposite of Cano, I should say. He was uh, raking last year until he ran into a wall and hurt his shoulder and then was totally worthless. This year, he looks back to being healthy again, playing more first base. Hopefully, he stays that way. Not only homering already, but stealing. Only had six stolen bases last year. So he's a guy so far so good, and maybe last year's collapse truly was a health issue. Yeah, I I said this on the radio, and I went on an extended kind of rant about it, but Hanley Ramirez hit three forty five one year. In Florida, and then he hit 341 another year or something like that. And then he hit 300 another year, and he hit 345 with the Dodgers like three years ago in a short season, half a season. There is no way that somebody who put up those kind of numbers in Florida, of all places, twice or three times in his peak, suddenly does not know how to hit at age 32. He's not 39. And even at 39, if he were healthy, I'm sure the guy could still hit. But at 32, there is no way that that guy is not a very, very good hitter. He's a borderline Hall of Fame bat. He's not going to make the Hall of Fame for various reasons. When you have a guy who's one of the perennial all-star elite bats in the league for a period of years at their peak, there is no way they don't know how to hit at age 32. So as long as Hanley is healthy, he will hit 25 home runs. He will bat close to 300, you know, maybe steal 10 bases, and that's going to be a steal. Unfortunately, I was saying this before the season, but I never took him. For whatever reason, he was going eighth, ninth round, and I was – always taking a Christian Yelich or a Randall Grichuk or somebody ahead of him that I just thought, yeah, I like Hanley, but I'll wait one more round. And then he was gone. I guess I wasn't the only one thinking this, but to me, it's pretty obvious that, you know, if healthy, that guy's going to be a monster. The problem is I've had him a couple of years and he just one thing after another. And this was ongoing all two years ago. And I just kind of, that, that was the issue with him is that it wasn't just you're on the DL and then you pay 120 good games. It was this constant nagging problem. Yeah, no, that could remain the case. But I, like I said, hopefully it helps him moving to first base as well. I mean, typically that should be the easiest position other than DH as far as staying healthy. But, yeah, it sounds like we're in agreement there. I got him in, I believe, two spots and wish I had him in more so far. So he's he's a guy that's kind of jumped out at me the first week that I'm happy I, 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 I got on a few teams. I'll throw out one more guy that Jeff and I talked about um, that I think is interesting, and it's Prince Fielder. He just did a home run yesterday, and apparently it was like a 440-foot home run. And – you think, okay, is Prince Fielder still strong? Yeah. Is Prince Fielder still a power hitter? Yeah. So why is everyone projecting him for like 23, 25 home runs? Well, because he only hit that many last year. What does that matter, how many he hit last year? Is he not capable? Is he not a strong enough man to hit home runs in Texas to hit 30? Why would – I don't understand why, if his power is not in doubt, and clearly by the distance of that home run, it's not. Why are people not seeing him as a 30-home run guy like he used to be? He also hit 305 last year and is still just 31 years old. It feels like he's been in the league forever because I guess this is his 11th season. But um, so I, I'm with you there, and I have him in a couple places. I actually have a big. Um, it's funny. So my biggest big buy-in at NFBC, I, I debated him and David Ortiz, and I went with him. And Ortiz went like 20 picks later, which is yep. even, that's so frustrating. And I couldn't even have gotten Ortiz if he did come back because both those are just utility own, only in that league. It's funny. I've been upset with Ortiz hitting these homers, but I actually own him in like friends and family, my home league. So I don't. I mean, 
Well, you know when you get in too many leagues and you overlap the wrong yeah. way? I told both these guys go nuts, frankly. I'd be happy with that. But but that's one thing. Uh, who would you have taken before the season? Well, I had a choice. I, I was actually targeting Ortiz in my 8-9 turn in the NFBC because that was what the drafts I looked at previously. That's where you could get Ortiz. And I thought that's a good 30 home runs right there with not hurting your average. And Fielder, I thought about it 4-5. I thought about it 6-7. I mean, I didn't think about him 4-5 during the draft because guys fell to me better than I thought. But – you know, right. it was a possibility, and six seven certainly was a possibility. But I got Fielder at the eight nine. He fell all the way there. So once he was there, I took him over Ortiz, and Ortiz went about five or six picks later. But anyway, the 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 bottom line is I have Fielder a little ahead of him just because of the age. I mean, I, I think Ortiz is going to go out on top. I think he's going to hit thirty home runs, drive in hundred runs, bat two seventy, and have a eight ninety OPS or something again. But Fielder is going to hit for a more average, I think. And I, I think, think you're younger. He's younger, and you know, I is there a is it possible for Fielder to hit forty home runs? I think it's possible. He hit thirty eight in two thousand eleven with Milwaukee. He hit forty six. He hit fifty. Even back in the day, at twenty eight fifty, thirty four forty six, thirty two thirty eight. These are pretty wide fluctuations. I totally agree with you, but again, Ortiz did hit thirty seven as recently. <laughs> right, last he, right. He did hit thirty seven last year. I, it's close. I mean, it's yeah, I, I agree. It's not a slam dunk by any means. Yeah, no, I hear you. I, I totally agree. We have him in a League of Leagues team that's fallen apart. Uh, I mean, you know dude, we have a – Pollock and Revere. Yeah, yeah. It's not – And we traded Jason many. Hayward in panic also in the offseason. And um, I forget our, our closers. Have Storin. Taken... We lost Storin. <laughs> we just got do, – do we keep Gregerson or not? We did. I kept, Yes. Good, yeah, good we work Gregerson. on that. That's big. That's actually and, and at least um, McGee looks like he's going to close in Colorado. And Andrew Miller is suddenly not going to miss the, the season. Right. So, so it could have been worse, I guess. But, man, that, we've had a couple brutal blows right away. Uh, I know. And we, we got I mean, the good thing, actually, it's going to help us now that everyone's quitting because that really hurt in the offense. But when those guys start quitting, we can start to pick up players and just stay on it with the offense. I think that's going to help us, actually, that everyone's going to, you know, everyone's going to tank and fall apart. For sure. All right. So I want to talk a little politics with you, Dalton. Um, as you know, Bernie won pretty big in Wisconsin by, I think, about 14 points. He's won seven out of eight. He's going to win Wyoming. It's going to be eight out of nine. And, you know, New York is the big one. It's not as big as California, but it's, it's damn big, and it's Hillary's Senate state. And just in terms of momentum, if Bernie wins even 52-48, all hell is going to break loose. That The Clintons are already panicking that, you know, they, they were supposed to have this. They're supposed to be pivoting toward the general they're pissed. They don't like it. They're, they wish this guy would just go away, getting all the uh, the plebes riled up about actually controlling their government. They hate this. They wanted to just you know, take care of their corporate sponsors and, and just go right to the White House. I mean, come on. Don't you know where your boss is? But no, the, the plebes are pissed now, and now he's gotten them all riled up, and a lot of them are saying they won't vote for her in the general. She's, she's annoyed. But, man, if he wins New York, it is going to be crazy. It is going – all hell is going to break loose. They, they always say, oh, the math, the delegate count, the math. But set that aside. If he wins her home state, the, the narrative is going to get very, very bad for her. So I've been waiting for this podcast to ask you the obvious question. What about this New York Daily News controversy with his interview to them? Well, you, you know that Mort Zuckerman, the owner of the Daily News, is a huge donor to the Clinton campaign and the Clinton Foundation. So – not know that it, it, it's really scummy and this if you look at the cover the sandy hook shame that is just so ridiculous no i just came across this headline like right before we started recording about i think someone was taking a stance that the new york daily news actually is going to help him win 
New York because of what they're doing him about Sandy Hook. Right. right. It's, it's so like, ridiculous and people aren't that stupid. That's just stupid. And you're right. I, th- I think it will help him because that kind of thing is like it's, it's like cheap shot Clinton politics that nobody likes. Nobody likes that. Don't lie to us. Tell us the truth. And, and the actual truth is that she's raising money from NRA lobbyists to her campaign. So it, it's, re- it's really twisted. And what was your thoughts on his uh, answers that, you know, in this interview that can be, you know, he's getting a lot of, of flack for? Yeah, well, read the New York Times. They said, actually, he had it right. And the Daily News question had it wrong. And basically that it is a complex set of regulations and regulatory bodies that have to deal with this. And he was sort of like, I don't know exactly what, you know, which mechanism is going to work. But to, to, I don't care. As a supporter, I, I want him to do what he needs to do to rein in the banks and figure out the statutes with the experts that know that kind of legal policy afterwards. You know, the idea of like, oh, well, he doesn't know how to do it, so how's he going to do it? It's like, well, you can either have someone who's going to try to do it with every tool, legal tool imaginable, and he generally outlined whether it's the Fed or whether it's the Treasury or the administration uh, or, or Congress that has to do it, or somebody who just says, there's no possible way to do it. We don't know the exact process, so we're not going to try. So I would rather that, and it just doesn't matter to me. The New York Times actually said some of the premises that Daily News got its question confused, so I think it's a nothing I think it's a non-starter, but of course, this is a paper that's owned by an oligarch who supports the Clinton Foundation, and so they're going to smear him every way they possibly can. And then the mainstream media, which CNN is owned by Time Warner, which are also big Clinton campaign donors, are going to run with the story and make it a big thing. But I think it's actually more of an issue among the national media than actual people who just don't give a shit about that kind of stuff. All right, so what are your current odds now? Uh, I think he's – I mean, I think he's going to win, but you know, if, if I had to bet – you know, I'd want to get at least four to one. I just think he's going to win. Everyone says, oh, the math. Don't you understand that the math doesn't matter if he wins New York and Pennsylvania and California? She won a bunch of states that voted before they knew who he was. And if he wins these next states and he's winning a lot of them by big margins, this, this delegate math, neither of them are going to get to the magic number. It's going to be them making a case for the superdelegates. Look, your candidate's been rejected. And the people, this is who they've chosen. That's – I'm not worried about him getting to the number or her getting to the number. Neither one is probably going to get to the number, barring the right. FBI indicting her or something like that. Then it would get to the, he would get to the number. But I doubt they're going to do that because they're just too cowardly to do that. Interesting. Well, should be should be pretty exciting. So, when is this all going to be decided by? When, when's the New York one again? The New York one is April 19th or something like that. And then the California one's June 5th. So that's really the big one at the end. Uh, right. I, want, I want to take on one other really stupid argument that Hillary Clinton is making, and she said he's not even a Democrat because he was an independent. He's, you know, he's, a, he's a Democrat come lately. He's just joined the party. Very recently, right? right. Like, like last year? Right, just to run because you need to – if you run as a third-party candidate, it becomes very problematic and probably more damaging right. uh, and in terms of raising money, the whole thing. The thing that's just so stupid about that, I mean it's just, it just shows how incredibly dumb either she is or she thinks the people are. Who's the real Democrat? The person who – uh, belongs to this establishment Democratic Party. Is that what a Democrat is? He, I've been in the establishment Democratic Party longer or the person who actually espouses Democratic policies. And if you think, well, how do we know who, who does the more Democratic policies? Well, why is it that he's raising money from the people? Each individual person is voting with their money for him already, giving him the money. And she goes on these $30,000 a plate fundraisers. What is more Democratic to be accountable, the people that you need to serve, the people that are giving you the money, basically, is who you serve, are all the regular people who are giving 27 bucks each. Or the people who are giving you money, major corporations and rich people, is who you serve. 
Who, what's more democratic? Just think about the meaning of the word democracy. Right. Like the rule of the many, right? <laughs> who's, who's really accountable to the many who are giving him the money? And who's accountable to the few rich people? It, it, it's, it's Orwellian in the extreme to say he's not a Democrat. It, 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 it subverts the meaning of the word 180 degrees of what it even means. It is such a preposterous thing to say. Nobody gives a fuck about the Democratic Party. Who's part of that party? You think people really care about that? Nobody gives a shit about that. Who's a real Democrat? People do care about that. But it's so obvious who the real Democrat is based on policy. All right, Liz, I love it. We'll talk next week, man. Uh, good luck for both of us in the League of Leagues, and I hope your friends and family team, aside from Puig, collapses entirely. All right, cool, man. Good times. Oh, this podcast, except for the political part, is sponsored by FanDuel.com. You can go to FanDuel.com, click on the mic in the upper right-hand corner, use my code RWPOD, sign up now. Special offer for new users. Get a free six-month RotoWire subscription with a $25 deposit. You must sign up with my promo code RWPOD. That's more than $60 in value for just 25 bucks. Don't forget to use my code RWPOD. FanDuel.com, where every day is a new season. That's F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com. Sign up today. They're going to kill the love of my life. Casey! If I don't go back to what I was doing. This Friday. Our line of work is quite brutal and quite ruthless. How far would you go for love? You steal truck, bring it to me. Then you make your money. Is it dangerous? Of course it's dangerous! Nicholas Holt, Felicity Jones, with Ben Kingsley and Anthony Hopkins. All this trouble, all this pain for love. Collide. In theaters Friday. Rated PG-13. Maybe inappropriate for children under 13.